0: 15 seconds, guidance is internal 10, 9, ignition sequence start Space Nuts 5, 4, 3, 2 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 Space Nuts Astronauts
1: report it
2: feels good Hello once again and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts It's all about astronomy, space science and whatever else we can cram in And this is our Christmas edition So Merry Christmas to you And I hope you're uh, having a a good time avoiding traffic and uh, the mayhem of shopping between um, now and then. Well, then might be today because this uh, does get broadcast on the Community Radio Network in Australia on Christmas Day. So uh, whatever the situation, I hope you're well. Uh, Now, today on the program, we will be talking about a new theory involving dark matter. Uh, An idea has been posed that could answer the question as to what dark matter is, but there are people, one of them that I'm about to talk to is not so sure about that. Uh, Also, the launch of the James Webb Telescope, it's uh, happening very, very soon, WoodSat. I love this story. WoodSat is exactly what it sounds like. We'll get to that. And because it's Christmas, we're going to talk about the Christmas star, uh, which Fred and I have done before, but not for a very long time. And questions about radio circles and space ethics coming up as well. I'm your host Andrew Dunkley, and joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi Andrew. How are you today to- i am I am well. Uh, I think we're we're past the Christmas rush at our place, but um, yeah well, I, not everyone gets as organized as my good wife, so good luck to them but uh yeah really good what about you
0: uh, very well thank you yeah it's, um, we're... <laughs> christmas has not been organized here we we have a christmas tree uh we uh, discussed um all kinds of things the big the big event will be on christmas eve when Marnie's family turns up for a christmas meal which we're looking forward to very much That'll be lovely. We'll all well, be wearing looking forward masks. to seeing
2: the, the grandchildren and you know, having the house destroyed as they get into it. So that'll be a lot of fun. All right, let's get down to business. And uh, the James Webb Telescope. Uh, everybody's waiting with bated breath as the launch gets ever closer, and we're looking at um, any time soon, basically
0: <laughs> Christmas Eve or uh, certainly um, uh, our time. <laughs> Christmas Eve, it will be. Uh, <clears throat> this is in, in Australian time. It's uh, it's. I think it's one o'clock in the afternoon. We're we're in pole position for it. It launches after mm. midnight Universal time. Uh, so yes, we're very much looking forward to that. me, the event that um, has been in the offing for probably best part of twenty five years. In fact, since the space the James Webb Space Telescope was first proposed a uh, 6.5 meter diameter mirror an infrared telescope hopefully will <coughs> excuse me hopefully will get rid of the frog in my throat yeah. uh, this morning uh, but also uh, as an incidental it will probe the universe back to within maybe a billion years of its birth perhaps discovering the first stars and galaxies and also at the other end of the scale it's got the it's got it will have the attribute of being able to uh, analyze in unprecedented detail the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. Yes. So, you know, we might find all kinds of things turning up there.
2: Very exciting. <clears throat> and I've seen a lot of uh, comment about it on social media. A lot of people yep. are really excited by this project. Yep. And, of course, uh, those that are at the coalface who have been making it happen, uh, th- this is crunch time. So I'm pretty sure there are a lot of nerves building up to this uh, because uh, you only get one shot at it.
0: Yeah, you do. That's right. Given that, that it's an, a very ambitious project to sort of unfurl this 18 element mirror and um, make it all look like a single optical surface, that's extraordinary engineering mm. on its own. To do that on Earth is pretty spectacular. To do it one and a half million kilometres from Earth, uh, that's another question altogether. But that's yeah, where it's and- going.
2: It will be out there in one of the it's Lagrange points, L two, that right? that's right. L two, yeah. yeah, uh, and Lagrange and point. unlike Hubble, which did run into some teething problems when it was uh, first launched, they were able to go and fix it. This one, yeah. not so simple. Uh, it's not even not so simple. It's impossible. Yeah, <laughs> with our current
0: technology, yeah, it's uh, well, too far away.
2: Let's not think about that. Let's, <laughs> let's just not think about that. No. Yeah. You know, wish them well. Godspeed uh, to uh, the James Webb Telescope team. Let's uh, now look at this uh, theory about um, the the possible reason for dark matter. Even though we don't know what it is, uh, a theory has, uh, this is actually an old theory, but they've revived the possibility that it is the answer to this question. We only said last week that we hoped that someone would come up with the answer. And within a week, as often happens in journalism, uh, somebody's proposed a potential answer. You're not overly convinced by the sound of it.
0: No. Um, it's, um, uh, so the, what's let, let's just outline what this is all about. Yes. Um It is the idea that the universe is filled with what are called primordial black holes. Um, and these are usually small, although some people have postulated there might be huge ones as well. In fact, we talked about those a few weeks ago. I forgot what they yeah. were called. Humongous primordial black holes or something. <laughs> they had, a, they had a, an acronym for it. Um, but the, the idea is that in the, in the early universe, um, the density of the hydrogen gas was so high um, that uh, what you could get would be clouds of gas, Andrew, that would collapse under their own gravity. Now, normally that's the first stage of star formation. So a cloud of gas collapses under its own gravity um, and forms a star. Uh, And that's how stars are born. But in the early universe, the suggestion proposed actually by Stephen Hawking as long ago as 1971, so a Mm -hmm. 50-year-old theory this is, uh, uh, the idea is that the density is so high that the collapse doesn't stop. In other words, it doesn't need to go through the star formation process. The cloud of gas collapses and simply keeps on collapsing until it forms a black hole. And that's the idea of a primordial black hole. And Hawking's speculation was that the universe was full of, possibly, but was full of these, uh, generally speaking, relatively small ones, uh, and that a lot of those are still around because, as you and I have spoken about before, black holes do evaporate, but they, they, they evaporate in times much much oh, on time scales much much longer than the edge of the universe currently so they haven't had time to disappear some some might have done but but most will still be there so uh back in about 1980 somebody suggested that maybe these black holes are actually what we re- re- what we see as dark matter so this is yes. a pretty old idea. It would have been early 1980s. And um, the pro- thing about this is you can actually test it by looking for evidence of gravitational lensing uh, in in star fields. Uh, so it, what you do is you look at a, a region of sky which has lots of stars in it, and you measure their brightness over time. And what you look for is the increase in brightness that you would get from a black hole passing in front of one of these stars. Because what it does, the black hole acts as a gravitational lens, it magnifies the light of the star, and the star brightens up. Um, And this sort of study was carried out during the 19... It's probably actually the 1990s rather than the 1980s. Now I come to think about it, because we were involved in it here in Australia. It was one of the jobs that was done by what used to be the Great Melbourne Telescope, a telescope very close to my heart, uh, which is being restored down in Melbourne, built in 1869. Um, and um, uh, they, they make a big fuss of me down there because I'm one of the few um, people still alive who worked for the
2: company that built it. Uh, oh. it's, uh, you, you know, you know it's, uh, I thought you were going to say you were there when they built it.
0: Um, well, uh, next, uh, that was the next best thing to being there. I knew, <laughs> I, I knew people who knew people who were there in 1869. Um, anyway, uh, the Great Melbourne Telescope was refurbished uh, in the 1940s, actually, and then refurbished again in the 1970s, I think, and used in the 1990s to observe rich star fields looking for exactly this, Mm. the the kind of gravitational lensing effect that you would get from primordial black holes. And they didn't see it. Um, and that is one reason why the idea of black holes, of, of dark matter being machos, and these primordial black holes count as machos, what are machos, massive compact halo objects, uh, and a massive compact object is a black hole. <laughs> so that uh, that was what essentially removed the idea of of dark matter being machos from the agenda. And it's still regarded as pretty seminal work, work that, um, you know, it wasn't done just by the Australian astronomers. It was done in other observatories as well. There was no evidence that uh, primordial black holes made up the dark matter. And that, I think, is still... The case, um, the work that has now been done, and what we're talking about today comes, I think, from Miami University of Miami. Um, yeah,
2: there, there are three organisations that I've come across that are involved in this: the University of Miami, Yale, and yes, European Space. And Agency.
0: ESA, that's right, the European Space Agency. Um, and th- there's, you know, that so that they they have uh, put forward a, a new model, um, and. What it, what it does is, I think, uh, the new model actually revisits the timeline of the early universe. Um, so what they're trying to explain, as well as the dark matter, is the origin of supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. Mm. Um, you know, how did they get so big so quickly that's the the bottom line there and so what this is perhaps speculating is that these these um primordial black holes could actually merge very quickly uh to grow into well either objects that might contribute to the dark matter or objects that um would uh would form supermassive black holes now i I don't I don't want to um, make it look as though I'm poo-pooing this idea, <laughs> Andrew, because I'm not. Um, I I think uh, it's a very interesting idea, and it, it will be fabulous if we could show uh, why it is that these things weren't picked up when surveys were done to detect them—the the machos, yeah. the, the supermassive, uh, the primordial black holes. So it's uh, it, it is a really interesting theory, which I think. Um, which I think uh, it, 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 um, it, it, it's worth, you know, it's worth pursuing. It's certainly worth looking at, as are all theories, including MOND, the uh, modified Newtonian dynamics, which our friend Peter Verweyen is a great advocate for doing his PhD on it. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll look at this uh, with great interest and follow. I mean, I mean what, what's going to be the verdict? Is the way the astronomical community. Response to this, uh, whether it is seen as as a, an
2: absolutely uh, monumental breakthrough, you need to be able to test it. That's the point. Yes, and, that's uh, yeah, yeah. that's important. I mean, if, you, you can come up with a theory, but if you can't test it, you can't prove anything. So, it forever <laughs> yes. remains a theory.
0: Yeah. So, so one of the things that might be useful in testing it is this marvellous telescope we've just been talking about the james yeah. webb space telescope because they are looking uh or the telescope will look into the distant past as i said uh probably exploring the first billion years of the history of the universe and maybe mm. seeing the first stars form and things like that and that actually is likely to put um limits on what what these black holes could be like, so that the, the James Webb might very well contribute to this argument, uh, and might very well give us some insights into whether this could be the answer to the dark matter problem. It would be marvellous if it was, wouldn't it be? <laughs> but, but we don't know yet. But so, it's, so it's a big step, yeah. And it's a great, you know, it's a great way to wind up 20, 2021 to talk about. Yes, um, yes, indeed. Something like especially
2: this. when we were only talking a week ago about, you know, when when are they going to come up with a with an answer well they haven't but um they 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 are starting to to reconsider an old theory now they all agree these universities in ESA that uh, the original theory didn't hold much water yes but they're suggesting modifications that might validate the theory according to what I've read so yeah I don't know what those modifications might be I haven't read that deeply into it but uh, let's just watch this space as we tend to say and, and see what they come up with. Uh, you know we might we might know something reasonably soon. Speaking of which, when do they think, the James Webb Telescope will actually be online and active.
0: Um, if I remember rightly, we had this from a listener question a little while ago, and if I remember rightly, the answer is about a month. Uh, ah. I think it takes about a month to get to to its station to get to. Yeah. To. It's right. uh, it's quite a long way, a million and a half kilometres. You know, when you think it's, uh, I think it's, um, ooh, is it three point nine times the distance to the moon? That's about right. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a good trek.
2: Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, Lots of interesting things to look forward to. Uh, And uh, yes, uh, next year we we certainly will be um, reporting on some of the wonderful things that the James Webb Telescope might discover. This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a quick break from the show to tell you about our sponsor NordVPN. Now, why do you need a virtual private network? Well, it gives you security. It gives you peace of mind. Uh, There is no geo-blocking. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee on this particular offer. Uh, You can block hackers, you can block spammers, you can block criminals, you can uh, protect your activities and your online banking, and you will be secure when using a public Wi-Fi service. And it works on any platform. Windows, Macbook, mobile phones, tablets, you name it. NordVPN works and it works fast. It's very efficient and highly rated. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, you get a special deal, two years for $3.16 a month. And I'll remind you that on the Australian browsers, the prices show up in US dollars. So bear that in mind. But that's $79 for 25 months, saving you 73% on the regular price. Lots of good reasons to get NordVPN, and it's as simple as logging on to this special URL: nordvpn.com/spacenuts. That's nordvpn.com/spacenuts, and of course they'll throw in a 30-day money-back guarantee. They are so confident about their product. Seriously fast internet service and premium security from NordVPN. The URL again is nordvpn.com slash Space Nuts. Check it out today and grab the deal. And now back to the show. Here
1: also. Space Nuts.
2: As I've mentioned oh, maybe just once or twice in the last calendar year, uh, if you would like to become a patron and help support Space Nuts financially, just go to our website and there's a supporter tab there and just check out what the options are. You can become a patron and, and pay a you know, little bit per month uh, through Patreon or Supercast, or you can just do a one-off through a donation in PayPal, or you can hit, click the Buy Us A Cup Of Coffee button. Now, these are all options it's not essential. We are not demanding that you do it by any means. We're just suggesting that the idea is available to you. If you if you want to support Space Nuts, you can certainly find out more through our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io and see what it's all about. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. But 30-day trials available uh, on Patreon and Supercast. So uh, if you don't like it after 30 days, you can go, no, nah, not for me and carry on. But if you do become a patron, there are presents. We'll send you presents. The longer you're with us, the bigger and better the presents. So um you know we we call that a carrot. The carrot and the stick. It's the old the old fashioned way of getting the horse to move. Um not that I'm referring to anybody as a horse. (laughs) Although they are elegant creatures. Now, let's get out of that hole and put ourselves into the next one. I love this story, Fred. I'm so excited by this. Um, This is expected to be launched next year, probably not with the same amount of fanfare as the James (laughs) Webb Telescope. This is a new satellite. It's a test satellite. It's called WoodSat because it's going to be made of plywood. (laughs) I think this is awesome. (laughs) It is indeed. It's
0: a great, this is a great story. Uh, and it's exactly as you've said, the mission is to see whether you can make a satellite out of wood um, because that's a, a good material with, with some good properties, um, you know, compared with the space great titanium and things like that that are normally, yeah. normally used. So it's a CubeSat, uh, which is 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres, um, uh, kilograms worth of uh, of, 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 of kit inside that's the standard (coughs) excuse me standard cubesat model (coughs) excuse me i've got the cubesat in my throat again um but what they're doing is making it out of wood uh because they want to see whether that's a possibility and you know if you could if you could fly wooden satellites routinely um it would have all kinds of advantages uh wood's a lightweight material (coughs) it's um easy to to um to shape and deal with much cheaper than space-grade Definitely titanium, cheaper. Uh, burns up without any problem when it re-enters the atmosphere. Exactly. So it's, yeah, and it's it's that this is the brainchild of a company called Arctica Astronautics uh, up there in Finland, um, and they they do manufacture cubesats. That's their their main stock in trade. But mm. this is a one made out of wood. Uh, it's a plywood. It's a coated plywood um, for. Uh, For the basically for the for for the outer surfaces and and the inner surfaces as well, because they're all uh, sort of open to space. Um, It's it's a birch uh, material that's the the same material as, as is used for, you know, hard, hard, hard wood uh, 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 furniture and things of that sort Uh, i'm i'm hesitating to mention the name of the company but you all know who i'm talking about not a finnish company but a swedish one (laughs) Uh, so it's that stuff it's ordinary it's it's basically ordinary plywood except that Mm -hmm. um they have treated it because um ordinary wood would be it's got too much moisture in it um and it's got to be Utterly dry to be in space because the the, the, the moisture in in wood would essentially evaporate. Uh, in fact, it turns directly into 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 gas, and will probably distort the wood um, beyond recognition. It would not be a pretty sight. No. Uh, so so what they do is they dry it out to start with, and then um, they are actually coating it with very thin layers of things like. Well, aluminium oxide—that's one of the uh, one of the coatings that is is being put uh, on top of it. And the yeah. idea is that that presents so, sort of will prevent it will seal the wood and prevent outgassing, uh, which is the problem. If, you know, outgassing is something that you've got to deal with. All space engineers—you uh, talk about outgassing—and they just don't want to know. It's it's taking them down territory that you you, you know that you. you You'd rather avoid, so it's got this coating of aluminium oxide. Uh, but they, they are also hoping that that will prevent corrosion of the wood surface by atomic oxygen, which we yeah. don't normally. Well, we don't encounter it at the surface of the earth. It's right on the on the on the edge of the atmosphere. Uh, it's it's basically single atoms of oxygen. Um, and it, it is quite quite corrosive, as I said. It's likely that it will it will darken these plywood panels. That's one of the effects of it. However, uh, the uh, the engineers think that it sh- the, the wooden satellite should survive. And so what they're doing as well, you know, since this is a test, what they've what they've got is a couple of cameras which are looking at different surfaces on the outside of the. On the outside of the um, spacecraft, the cubesat, which have been treated in different ways, so there's varnishes and things like that that have been put on. Yeah. Um, I'm sure in small, you know, over small areas, and then a camera to see what uh, what actually these things turn into when uh, they're subject to the environment of space. Um, I think they've got some some other experiments on board to to, to look at. Uh, 3d printed plastic material uh to 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 test whether that stuff works as well so mm. lots lots and lots of things going on um and it you know i think it's a brilliant experiment and uh, mm. who would have thought it a a wooden satellite going into space yeah <laughs> wouldn't you know
2: uh but yeah um... <laughs> Wouldn't you know? Thank you. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, it was due to be launched in November, but they've pushed it back to next year. So it'll be early next year that we're likely to see the launch of WoodSat. I love, I love the name of it, WoodSat. It's <laughs> just a perfect name, and what a great idea! I mean, if this works, this could make satellite delivery um, a whole, yeah, you know, change just change the ball game completely. It could do. Yes, that's right. Um... The, um, the, you i can know, the, see the i can see the movie now borers in space it's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. won't be long
0: yeah from woodstock to woodsat there you go
2: <laughs> that's Pretty even better gro-
0: groovy man <laughs>
2: i love it yes very very groovy Yeah. yes um well we'll just keep an eye on this one because i'd, I'd love to um just see how it all goes and yeah. and Again, we wish them well. I love some of these experiments that have been popping up in recent times. Of course, the um, the different attempts to try and recover space junk. We talked about that experiment uh, with nets and harpoons and all that sort of thing. Now we've got wooden satellites being tested. I mean, gosh, it's just what a lot of fun. I, you know, if I could have my time over again, I might um, I might change careers. I think this is this would be just so much um, fun to try and. Get involved with, and you know, if they succeed, uh, all power to them. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the root of all science. Really, is that is just having fun, and oh, of course, yeah.
2: <laughs> the yeah. trouble
0: is, one day somebody important is going to find out that we scientists are having a lot of fun. are <laughs> just getting paid to turn up and. Enjoy yourselves. Well, that's what's right. That all about? Yes, yeah. what's that all about? That's right.
2: <laughs> now, uh, being Christmas, Fred, uh, I thought we'd uh, revive a, a story that you and I did some time ago, and uh, it is the Christmas star because a, a lot of people do wonder what yeah. what happened that night and what it may have been. Uh, and it, it was actually something that uh, was studied and a, um, an answer was proposed.
0: Yes, there have been um, many. Uh, People have been looking at the Star of Bethlehem as a a possible scientific observation for 400 years. Kepler was one of the first people to think about this. Um, Johannes Kepler. So uh, what's the story? Well, the Gospel of Matthew mentions this star, uh, which wasn't just there for one night. It apparently was visible for some time, Mm. Uh, and which was subtle, though, because... Herod, who was the bad guy in all this, he wanted to get rid of this new king of the Jews. Uh, He asked the the wise men, the magi, who basically were Persian astrologers probably, who'd kind of seen something in the sky. Uh, He asked them to show him where the star was, which kind of rules out something really obvious, like a supernova or a comet, something that would be brilliant in the sky. If he had to ask them... His own astrologers would have been advising him of what was going on in the in the sky, so it's it's thought to be something much more subtle. Um, I I might just mention as well that um, a lot of people at the moment they see because Venus is brilliant in our evening skies at the moment, not for much longer actually. It's going between the Earth and the Sun uh, towards the end of uh, at the end of this month, but um, it's brilliant in the evening sky. And people say, well, you know, could that have been the star of Bethlehem? But that happens every couple Of years or so, it's um, and, and these guys would have fully understood all that sort of thing, so it would that would not have been anything new uh, or spectacular, whereas a comet or a, uh, an exploding star would have been. Although, as I've said, that's kind of ruled out by the fact that Herod had to ask them where it was. So, the thinking has been for many years that it is probably something a lot more subtle, and there are significant. Conjunctions of different planets uh, at around this time in mm. const- constellations that have got significance to the Jewish people and things of this sort. Um, I think one in Leo, the constellation, which is of course speaks of kingship. It's that sort of that sort of thing. Um, there were there were several of these conjunctions. They're all about the right time, around six uh, B.C. Uh, um, and more I think in about 3 BC uh, the, the dating of all this is a little bit fluid but you can I think the dating of Herod's death is fairly well established and think that was before 0 BC uh, so yep. the events reported in Matthew's Gospel must have happened before his death since he was still around to, to do all the bad stuff um, so uh, those are the kinds of things that people imagine the Star of Bethlehem might have been some mm. sort of subtle conjunction
2: Okay. Uh so maybe a planetary alignment or Yep. So but not not likely a comet. Comet Leonard. <laughs> well comet Leonard that's right which I haven't managed to see yet because we've had
0: such cloudy weather. Um, uh, uh, but
2: one of our one of our listeners actually got a photo of it. Oh
0: very so, good. That's good yeah. great to hear. The the thing about comets Andrew is people have speculated that perhaps it could have been a comet but comets are, have been since ancient times bad omens. Mm. Uh, you know, and this was exactly the opposite. It's, um,
2: oh, uh, yeah, except for Herod. Well, <laughs> yeah, it was a bad omen for Herod. That's right. Mm. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we're thinking a conjunction. It may have been that, yeah. uh, consequently, became known as the Star of Bethlehem. Mm. Uh, you are listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. <laughs> Space Nuts. Now, have you visited the Space Nuts shop yet? You can't walk into it, maybe one day, but at the moment it's a virtual shop on our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and just click on the link that says shop, which, uh, you know, that that's quite an astounding coincidence that we have a shop on a tab named shop. Uh, but in there you can get the bubble-free stickers, you can get the T-shirts, you can get the polo shirts, look, if you're watching on YouTube. With the logo on them, you can get cups and mugs like that one behind me or the tote bag. Uh, There are hats and caps and um, hoodies. Those are for the tough people in our Space Nuts podcast group and uh, all sorts of other things. And the um, uh, idea that was posed by young Ashley, I am a Space Nuts sticker, uh, they are available too. I am a space nut. So, um, yes, and and uh, we, we sent some of those to Ashley as a, as a thank you. So, uh, fabulous. If you want to uh, visit the Space nut shop, it's on our website. Now, Fred, we got some questions, and uh, the man who suggested you switch to A2 Milk, Peter on the Gold Coast, has actually got a question for us this time. So let's see what he wants to know. Hello, Fred and Andrew. It's Peter, the milkman from the Gold Coast here. I have a question this time, not a suggestion. I was listening to your podcast 282, the latest one, and you mentioned radio circles which I had never heard of before. And I was just wondering, is it possible that they could be Einstein rings actually appearing in the, uh, the radio frequency and where you can see a galaxy in the centre, then that galaxy could be doing the lensing And where you can't see a galaxy, that there might in fact be a supermassive black hole in the centre and it could be doing the lensing. That's it. Simple question. Um, Interesting subject. Stay well. Bye. You too, Peter, and Merry Christmas to you. And, uh, yeah, we talked about radio circles last week and, uh, yeah, the the mystery of some of them that have galaxies inside them, some don't. Uh, What do you think of his theory? Uh, I, I, I like Peter's
0: thinking very much because um it you know it, it links something it links to two things that are so reasonably circularly symmetric. Um, uh, but it but it has been considered uh, by the team who discovered the odd radio circles. Uh, Einstein rings were one of the things that they ruled out. Uh, just just to type the loose end, what are Einstein rings? If you have two objects in space, one, in front of the other, which has got a very nice spherical, uh, symmetrical gravity field, and that would certainly be something like a black hole, but more often than not, it's a a galaxy, uh, a massive galaxy, and then behind it, in exactly the same line uh, behind it, uh, a more distant object, Uh, what the galaxy can do is because of its gravitational lensing, the fact that it bends the space around it and that forms effectively a lens, you get this you get this ring of um, the further object uh, you don't see it as an image uh, of its well you see it of, a, of an as a, as an image of itself but it's distorted into a ring that surrounds the the lensing object um, they uh, they are well known Einstein rings. There are several really good examples of them, and they're not just in visible light; they're in radio emissions as well. Mm. Uh, and but uh, the, the the I think the reason why they were ruled out by the the team who have discovered the odd radio circles, the radio astronomers, is because they're too far away from, you know, for example, the lensing galaxy. If that if that yeah, as As Peter says, some of them have got galaxies at their center. Um, but uh, if that was forming an Einstein ring, the ring would be much smaller than the uh, odd radio circle. And I have to say that you know the images I've uh, looked at of odd radio circles. They don't look anything like Einstein rings, which have got really quite a a distinct structure to them. They, you, you know, you can usually see traces of the of the structure of the of, of whatever it is that's being magnified uh, and turned into a ring. You can usually yeah. see remnants of that in them, and and the, these odd radio circles they, they don't show that kind of thing. Um, they they don't have the same sort of sharp edges to them that the Einstein rings do. So it's a mm. great suggestion, but um, certainly the team. Uh, uh who have done the work on odd radio circles who are much more knowledgeable than I am about this topic, uh, they've ruled them out. So in fact they've ruled out everything. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so they're, they're saying some unknown process, some some phenomenon that causes mm. these things that are that is not yet understood. And they haven't found
2: many of them yet, have they?
0: No, I think. how many did we say when we were speaking last week? Was it nine? It was, I think it was something yeah, of that sort. Yeah, something like
2: that. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, yet another mystery for us to, uh, to ponder, I suppose, Peter, and lovely to hear from you. Let's move to Pennsylvania where we're going to um, discuss, well, Misty will explain what she wants to know.
1: Hi, Andrew and Professor Fred. This is Misty West from Western Pennsylvania, in the United States. Um, I'm curious to know about the ethics of space exploration and who talks about it. Like, do we have a review panel or an international body that um, discusses the direct ethical concerns about space exploration and how we are good space stewards going forward? I mean, we talk a lot about like trash in space and the preventing the Kessler syndrome. I've heard a few news stories about concerns for contamination with microbes from Earth going to other worlds or with bringing things back from other worlds to Earth that could potentially impact humanity. And then, like, if space explorers going forward are taking a one-way trip, basically, to space, like, who talks about that and who who makes those decisions? So the other question along those lines I had was... If there was a large asteroid that we discovered today, say it was coming from the sun and we couldn't see it until the last minute, and it was large enough that we knew it was going to destroy life on earth, who would make the decision to tell people and would they tell people, would you tell people if you saw it and you knew about it or just let you know people be <laughs> surprised at the last minute? Okay. Thanks, guys. Love your show. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Misty. And thanks for being a patron, by the way. I hope you enjoy the little prezzies we we send out to you. Uh, yeah, some really interesting questions there. The latter question probably putting you on the spot as an astronomer, <laughs> Fred. But, um, yeah, who who does review the ethics of things we do in space? And my first thought was the Astronomical Union, International Astronomical Union, although they, they probably are more focused on some of the rules and regulations that apply. So, are there is there any particular body or bodies that uh, that is focused on these things?
0: Yeah, there are a number, and I'm really glad, Mister, has raised this because this is a question. It's a it's a topic that interests me a lot, and I've had a little bit to do with. Mm. Um, I, I mean, just, just to mention what that is, the um, we have a, a, a public science institution in Australia called Questacon. Uh, and Questacon uh, runs fabulous exhibitions. They've got um, exhibitions at their headquarters, which are in Canberra, so there's a a science centre there. But they also have um, an exhibition, they sometimes have travelling exhibitions, but they've also got something uh, down at the Space Agency in Adelaide. They've got um, a space research centre there. And as part of that, and this is the bit I was involved with, um, they have set up what they call an ethics kiosk. And this is uh, inviting the public to give their opinions on questions exactly like the sorts of things that Misty's asked. And it's really interesting because often those questions don't have a straight answer. Um, you mm. know, there's 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 arguments both ways. Um, and uh, I'm peripherally involved, uh, I'm certainly not directly involved with it yet, but th- there might be, I hope to be, uh, with a study... Uh, of the analysis of the, the responses from the you know the public members of the public who've who've tackled those questions because they're they're quite interesting. Uh, I've seen some of the results and they're they, 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 they're not entirely what you would have expected. Uh, what people think about exactly these sorts of issues. So uh, is there an an overarching ethical body? In a sense, there is. COSPAR is the Committee for Space Research. It's an international body um it's the signatories of the space treaty which was signed uh, back in 1967 uh i i can't remember i think it's 114 countries that are signatories and there are more that that are sort of observers or something of that sort i can't remember the details i was looking at this not very long ago but anyway uh, kospar is is a body that does uh look at exactly the issues Uh, that we've just mentioned. And in in particular, and perhaps the best controlled one, is the one that Misty mentioned in connection with microbes, because uh, Mm. Cosbar very early on in the piece, back in the... In fact, they may have set this up in the 50s, some of this sort of stuff, uh, set out what are called the planetary protection rules, which are all about avoiding microbial contamination, either forward contamination by... Earthly microbes going to somewhere like Mars that could actually sustain microbes or backward back contamination, which is the other way around when you bring stuff back. Yes, contaminate the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me, Peter. I'm, I'm taking your advice regarding milk, but it doesn't always work. <laughs> um, so, the uh, th- that works well. The planetary protection rules are pretty well adhered to uh, by those nations who. Uh, are sending, ro- for example, rovers to Mars. Um, mm. the, the the rules are followed. The the, the space vehicles are, are sterilized to a high, very high degree of sterilization. Uh, certainly in in the case of ones that visit um, places where life could take hold, perhaps uh, the, the the regions of Mars where occasionally it gets above freezing point, for example. So that's um, I think something that's reasonably well looked after. Um, NASA has a planetary protection officer. I'm sure other space agencies do as well, uh, which follow the rules. But it, yeah. it, it's a bit more <coughs> uh, fluid when it comes to simply launching satellites. Um, the
2: well, uh, the yeah, that, that That's become an ethical question this indeed. year. With so many, with, with know, the, tens of thousands of yeah. low... Level satellites being launched for internet purposes, and and I know that's been a talking point amongst our audience because a lot of them are amateur astronomers, yeah. and they're really concerned about the yeah. light pollution or the or, or the interruption it might cause to their observations.
0: Indeed, and that's my involvement as well because we're um, very heavily involved in this in the department that I work for. Um, mm. uh, so it's um, and and in fact. Um, uh, We had a very nice presentation um, a couple of weeks ago by... Um, a person who's she 's actually a space lawyer but also a space a space ethicist and i'm hoping to set up a a, a, a zoom talk from uh, Cassandra steer she 's at the australian national university uh, so that's something we might advertise down the track um on space nuts uh because she because she's across this topic completely um yeah. uh, but my understanding and a, a lot of this comes from uh, cassandra's presentations is that the the, the global body in connection with this is something called the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union. And they're the ones who allocate the parts of the radio frequency spectrum that these satellites will use. Mm. Um, and they are... It's not rubber stamping that they do, but they're pretty um, you know, keen to, to promote the space industry, promote communications and things of that sort. So they do... They they do treat these things um, seriously, and they they tend to give the tick to anything that's reasonable. Um, It's the jury's still out on whether they'll give the tick to an an application from the Rwandan government recently for two space constellations, which would total three hundred twenty-seven thousand satellites. Yeah, wow. You know, the feeling in the industry is that they're just probing to see what would happen but um it, the ITU could could give that a tick uh, yeah. so but that's the global level but the real regulation is at national level it's all takes place in the national levels and that is um you know one of the inadequacies you really need uh, a, a global body and th- there is one there's something called COPWAS the Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space which nations actually sub- subscribe to they uh, they send uh national representatives to COPWAS. we do here in australia members of the uh, space agency um but that's a un a un body uh it's certainly not the iau the international astronomical union they they can certainly feed their views into COPWAS, but they they don't dictate things but COPWAS, is is a being a un body it's it's a fairly it's not very nimble on its feet, if I can put it that way. It, you know, yeah. Things take a long time to work out, whereas the national space agency or the national agencies that uh, validate space flight, they can work much more quickly. And in the US, there's actually quite a lot. There's the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority. There's the FCC, I think, which is the Federal Communications Commission, and then there's, there's NASA. There's various levels of approval that have to be sought by bodies wanting to launch satellites, like Star, mm. uh, you know, SpaceX with Starlink. Um, uh, and but the tendency is for them to get the tick of approval. Now, um, just going to the extreme edge of this. Sorry, I've rambled on. you can tell no, that's okay. top, top, It's really just, fascinating. <laughs> um, it, about you know, Misty mentioned the issue of. Uh, people uh, uh, author are agencies authorizing a one-way trip uh, into space for humans and yeah. my guess is that that would not happen that i don't think there's any space agency in the world with the possible exception of some you know sort of basket case nations who i won't mention uh, that might but but i think um, I, I don't want to cause a diplomatic incident there which is why i'm not mentioning any names the mm. uh, the you know the um, Uh, The the space-faring nations of the world, I think, would draw the line at that. I don't believe they would authorise the launch of humans into space. Until the
2: day comes where they want to export their convicts. I mean, that's how Australia came about. that's right, that's right. I mean, you know, we
0: we in Britain are, are number one criminals in that regard uh, not me personally but my forebears i know yes
2: but you know as as australians we love to rub it back in the british faces because yeah. we beat them at cricket every time <laughs> and they, <laughs> and they the caused moment. that yeah. <laughs> yeah we're giving them a bit of a towel up at the present time yeah. but the, the, these ethics questions as you, you know, i heard you mention that they they are often administered at a national level we've seen that kind of go down the toilet recently with uh, a certain missile launched to destroy a satellite. I mean, how unethical does that yeah. appear to be? Yeah, that that that's, that that's
0: was surprising, um, mm. I have to say. That was surprising.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose if we were going to do a top 10 dumb things in space list for it 2021, that would be at the top. It will be on it, that's right. Indeed. So, so, now, so the, sorry, go, go ahead, Andrew. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna to go to the next phase of Misty's question, but if you had one more thing to say about Yeah,
0: just just that it is really complex. Uh it's something I've struggled to understand and I've you know I've my a- Toes in the space industry for fifty years, um, but um, just the the, the the legislative framework and and the ethical frameworks of it all is it's, it's uh, really uh, complicated. But I, I do believe that people are uh, more and more people are asking exactly the questions that Misty is asking. What are the ethics of all this? You know, yeah. I I've talked long and boringly probably about the ethics of colonizing mars uh, because i think it's an entirely unethical thing to do but mm. um there's nothing to stop it you know if if uh, if spacex and elon musk wanted to do that at the moment there's no legislation that would say you can't do that
2: yeah okay Yeah, I I think these kinds of debates are going to go on for decades to come. Uh, To Misty's um, second question and that of the ethics of warning people of uh, impending danger. So she kind of put you on the spot. If you were to go out tonight and look at your telescope and say, oh, look, a little, oh, no, not so little asteroid and do your calculations, which will hit us in two weeks' time and destroy the planet or cause widespread damage, would you tell anyone if there was nothing we could do about it?
0: Well, there would be stuff that could be done. Um, there would be civil defence measures that could be done, some of which might be very extreme. First of all, it's good to recognise the point that something uh, big enough to do global, to, to have global extinction consequences, would be big enough to spot. Um, and the the likelihood is that... Uh, it, it's not going to creep up on us unawares. There might be an object of that size that we, we'd get 30 years warning about and then that might be something that we could take, defensive measures. So the,
2: so the ones that either are very close at the last second or have already passed us are smaller ones that yeah. have come in from behind the sun that we yeah. just didn't spot.
0: That's right. And and we're talking, you know, something 50, 50 metres across, which could certainly wipe out a city. Uh, mm. that, um, that That's at the level which makes it hard to detect. Um, uh, it, it, actually, 50 metres is probably too small, but, but you'd get similar effects to what we had with Chely- Chelyabinsk in 2013, yep. uh, which effectively it didn't wipe out the city, but it did a lot of damage and <laughs> it injured a lot of people. There were no fatalities, but there were injuries. Uh, mm. So um, something 100 metres across would be more significant. That's a, a one in... Fifty thousand year event. I think remembering, you know, the the um, the, the statistics. So th- this this whole field is relatively well understood, and there are lots of instruments in the world which are actually looking for these objects. And the the, the big new one which is going to come online is the Vera Rubin uh, telescope down in Chile, an eight point four meter, I think it is, uh, telescope which will survey the entire sky every more or less every week. Uh, so you're going to find objects down to this 50 or 100 meter level. Um, NASA many years ago mandate sorry, uh, Congress mandated NASA, uh, I think in the 90s to 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 explore this this type of object. Uh, and NASA, so I can't remember when it was. It was probably 10 15 years ago. They uh, were they satisfied all the authorities that they had discovered 95 percent. Of all objects bigger than a kilometer in diameter, uh, now there's still five percent that you, you're not going to find, and that's because this thing is all done on statistics. But most of those big ones, these are kilometer-sized objects which would uh, cause statewide damage, not global, but statewide. Uh, that that um, would that that is probably a, a we hope something that's not going to take us unawares, and it's the smaller objects that they're now concentrating on. Mm. So. Um, so- so, the answer would is you tell um but i wouldn't i you know i would not know i wouldn't be the first person to know um the the uh, the uh, there are um, global bodies uh that look after the idea of potentially hazardous asteroids they would have a set of protocols i'm sure on uh how the public was informed but um it, i I don't think any secrets would be kept um you know the whole this is a scientific as well as a civil defence exercise, uh, I think things will be pretty open because it's a global thing. You're not you're not yeah. able to keep secrets. There are many amateur astronomers now that could monitor the progress of a one-kilometer asteroid if it was on its way to Earth mm-hmm. and work out its orbit and tell you when it's going to happen.
2: There you go. You can sleep tonight, Misty, uh, <laughs> yeah. knowing that it's that it's covered. Uh, yeah, there are a few that slip under the radar but they're yeah. not as not not the uh, earth shattering ones that That's you see right. in the movies yeah indeed uh thanks misty lovely to hear from you fred that wraps it up for another episode And i just want to say um, thank you to you for everything you do on space nuts you commit a lot of time and effort to it uh and it is greatly appreciated by me by Hugh, but by the wider audience. We get so much positive feedback about what you do and uh, it is such a joy to work with you. So thank you very nice. much.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Likewise with you as well. It's a it's a great to have a couple of old blokes who can talk about stuff like this and people want to listen.
2: <laughs> yes, I think it's fantastic and yeah. I love that we've created this little yeah, community. A little that, family, uh, that's right. And they can talk to each other and show each other their photos and, and get on Facebook and, and and do that via the Space Nuts podcast group. So, uh, yeah, I think it's terrific. And um, thank you to our audience. Thank you to all of you for for just uh, being a part of this uh, little thing that we created a few years ago that's, that's grown to become what it is and hopefully will go uh, even bigger and better next year. Uh, without your support, we would never have got here. So thank you so much. And we wish you well for Christmas and the new year and, and hope you have... Um, to use the American vernacular, happy holidays. And uh, we, we look forward to talking to you again in 2022. Thank you, Fred, and uh, have a Merry Christmas. You too, Andrew. Good, great festive season. <laughs> Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at SpaceNuts. Thanks also to Hugh back in the studio who does it all. He just puts it all together and gets it out there. Uh, does all the legwork. We have the fun. He just has to do the hard work, and we really appreciate it. And thanks to our sponsors. So many people have come on board in the last twelve months or so to, uh, um, you know, to um, work with us, and and we appreciate them as well. But uh, from me, uh, thank you so much uh, once again, and and we uh, wish you and your family all the very best for Christmas and the new year, and we'll...